Hello and welcome to From Panels to Pictures. Uh, this is the movie review show for The Comic Crush. Uh, I'm Paul. I'm joined today by Tony Van Raas, uh, who's joining us all the way from Belgium. Tony, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Paul. You got my name right. That's uh, I, I, I've, I've been practicing. <laughs> Uh, you can hear me garble Tony's name on, a, on another interview, actually, somewhere uh, for his fantastic comic book, uh, Crow Song, which debuted at the 2019 uh, Thought Bubble Comics Festival in the UK, which I think was the probably the last um, public fest comics con in the UK, wasn't it? Because it was just prior to the shutdown in uh that we had in march 2020 so you you, you were probably the last one of the last books announced <laughs> when you think about Maybe. it <laughs> i don't know it's hard to say i feel like i've mm. time traveled from the end of 2019 to the end of 2021 almost so mm. it's, it's it's hard to say because i'm going it, to i'm going to brussels comic-con tomorrow and i'm kind oh, of oh wow I'm not sure what what that's going to feel like to uh, walk the the aisles and see so many people together. That's and, fantastic. Uh, I, I had no idea that was going on actually. Yeah. Um, it's three weekends of cons actually because Brussels Comic Con is this weekend and then uh, there's another big Comic Con here called Facts. Right. Uh, next weekend and then the weekend after that is Thoughtable 2021. So it's going to be yeah, it's, it's uh, nonstop con weekends. Which I, I, I hope, hope to uh, if you if you make your way down to London, I hope to uh, to catch yeah. up with you. Uh, I'll we'll be in London like a couple a couple of days before uh, Thought Bubble weekend. So fantastic! We can, I got we can, can have a pint or a coffee or uh, uh, you know just just catch up and and, and shoot the breeze on comics. One hundred percent. And although Tony did a fantastic comic called Crow Song, um, which you can buy on his website, which is tonyvanraz.com. Is yep, that right? Exactly um, right. We'll, we'll have a link below, and it is worth checking out. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous comic. Um, we're not actually here to talk about comics today. We are going to be talking about Dune, because this is a uh, from Panels yes. to Pictures special. This is part one of a... Hopefully a two-part show. Um, so we're calling this one Caladan, just because I'm I'm nice and pretentious. But just to keep it on a theme, uh, part two, which we'll be calling Arrakis, will be in about a week's time from the date you're watching this. Uh, and that'll have Keith Isles, you, you all know from Home Media Minefield. He's coming on to dis also discuss Dennis, Dennis Villeneuve's version of the film, but to talk more as well about the original Lynch version. Um, but Tony, we're, we're going to try and concentrate today on the uh, you know, version, um, which I, I saw only recently. You've seen... Can you tell the audience, Tony, how many times have you seen this film now? I've seen it four times so far. But in my defense, like it's it's been out here in Europe for quite a while now because right. I saw it at... Um, yeah on the 11th of September at the Brussels Film Festival. So it opened here, I think, like a, a month and a half before it opened overseas in the UK and the US. Mm. Um, for, for some reason, this we, we kind of almost gone backwards with this film to the, uh, to the kind it of is, staggered release date. It's so weird. It is, it is kind of weird to see how flipped it is. Because as a kid, I remember like uh, movies opening here months after they opened in mm. the US and the UK. 
And uh, even with some of the Marvel movies, we get them a couple of days before they drop in the in the U.S. So, um, but I, but this yeah. is a this is kind of a dramatic gap because. Uh, yeah, I, I saw it early, and I, I wanted to talk with it about so many people, but it's like, yeah, it's not out here. You can't watch it yet. Um, and I think it's partially to do with Vienna's popularity in Europe, because he, he is a, a filmmaker that, that yeah. Europe seems to have adopted and, and absolutely loves. Um, I think it's partly because they can tell themselves he's French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm jesting. I'm just jesting, but but you know, I, I think he's one of those filmmakers that displays, I, I guess, what you could call very European characteristics in his films. So they can be mildly ponderous, but in a good way. Um, they seem to be more intellectual than even when he's working in you know genres that are mm -hmm. more traditionally kind of amped up and uh, americanized if you like um so there is something i feel in that and certainly this is this is no different um so I, I before we kind of get into the meat and potatoes of the film you you've read the book yes Many, right. many years ago. And okay. I actually, I came to Dune because my parents loved the uh, David Lynch version. Oh, right. So much okay. Because there's still like, from time to time, we still quote like Alia Atreides at the end of the original Dune version. <laughs> where she's like, how can this be? For he is the Kwisatz Haderach. This is something <laughs> me, and, me and my parents sort of yell at each other sometimes. <laughs> So I can just see them saying that on your birthday every year. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, obviously, this is radically different from the Lynch version, um, which is something we'll get into, and we will definitely kind of get into more in depth with with Keith because I think he's got some stuff to say about it. But um, I haven't read the book; I only know. The, the Lynch version of the, well, I can't really remember it. I need to, no. I've got it sitting right here and I am going to try and sit and watch it again before uh, we do the next part of the podcast with Keith. Um, I've just been struggling to find the time lately. Um, and I didn't really know what to expect with this. Obviously I'd seen trailers and things and, and heard a lot of sort of the internet scuttlebutt. Um, and, and this is being billed here. And was it done this way in Europe? It, it's part one. Oh. Yeah, I think that's sort of the main criticism that uh, I've heard from this movie is that people are kind of surprised that, you know, it just kind of ends like it's not a very satisfactory ending mm. to a lot of people because it they feel like the story's only just gotten started. And I think that's part of uh, is it, you know, a fault of the marketing? I don't know, but I've seen it everywhere. It's just advertised as uh, Dune and mm -hmm. no mention of a subtitle or, or a part one anywhere. And even when when it went into pre-production, I was like, are they going to do the same thing that they did with the David Lynch movie? Is going to be the entire story in one movie? And then only through looking at the casting, seeing that certain characters like Fade hadn't been cast yet, it was sort of my first clue that, oh, it's just going to be a part one. Right uh, of the original novel's, you know, story. Um, so so I, I kind of get it why people are uh, 
maybe a little thrown by that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and they actually waited until the movie was out pretty much everywhere. So it, I think England was the final kind of uh, release country. Mm-hmm. And they actually waited until it was out in the UK to announce that, yes, indeed, part two is, is going to be coming. Now, I, I'm unsure if they've shot any of that. Uh, because my understanding was they were going to shoot two films back to back, but that doesn't seem to have been the case. That's one of the reasons why I can. I do. I like the ending. I do feel like mm. it completes kind of an arc there, but it knowing that you know it, the the sequel hadn't been offici- officially greenlit yet, it feels mm. kind of like when you saw the ending of Fellowship, you know, the first Lord of the Rings movie or even one of the Matrix sequels, you knew that, oh, the next part is going to come out in mm. six months from now, or it's confirmed that it's going to be next year. And with this one, it was like, oh, this is a huge open ending, and we're not even sure if there's going to be a follow-up. And, I mean, bold move on the part of you know Villeneuve to sort of, mm. uh, and the studio to sort of say, like, let's end it here. Um without any confirmation that there will be a next one. Because honestly, if this movie had completely bombed, then that would have just been it, I think. Especially in the current landscape of cinema releases. Completely. And that, that's yeah. something we, we, we can't ignore, is that the pandemic has, has really kind of hacked into box office and has, has changed the way things are doing. Do, do you how, how do you feel about the argument for releasing the film simultaneously on on home viewing. I mean, I I have very particular feelings about it, um, which is kind of I think it goes against the grain of of what everyone else seems to think, but that's fine. You know, um, how, but how do you feel about it? I think uh, it depends on the context. I think streaming offers a lot of opportunity for people for that you know wouldn't if for films that wouldn't necessarily have a, a big release to, to get those films seen by more households than you know normally would be the case but in terms of um a film like like this i feel should be seen on a big screen because just the, the scale of it is massive and of course i mean that's kind of disconnected from the argument if like if you're able to see it in a safe environment or not, then, you know, if you don't feel comfortable going to the Mm. cinema, I think having the option to watch it at home is, of course, wonderful. But um, I think in in terms of, you know, this being a huge studio, like a massive production, a movie like this kind of asks to be seen on, you know, a huge IMAX screen or or like a really nice theater with uh, like pristine image quality and pristine Mm. sound. So I think I think context of the kind of movie that we're talking about is very important here. Mm. I think, like, <clears throat> my feelings on it, I, and I, just to put this in context, I went to see this film at the uh, IMAX at Cineworld in Leicester Square. I was invited to a, uh, a BAFTA screening by a friend of mine who was a BAFTA member. I was very lucky to get a, a, a sort of free ticket there. And I, I just want to give him a shout out. That is uh, my friend Keith, who's coming on the show in about a week or so, uh, who the audience knows quite well. He's done a lot of uh, podcasts and things with me. Um, so, Keith, thank you for that. I felt really lucky to be able to see it on a screen that big. 
Um, it's a lovely screen. I, I used to work in that cinema indeed, and I, I, I was there when they first put, put the IMAX screen in. Um, and it, it's a, such a lovely big screen. Um, so I really enjoyed seeing it there. However, I am a big advocate now for, and I, I will admit a complete selfishness in saying this, I'm a big advocate now for simultaneous or near simultaneous home release. Partly because of the health implications, although, as we discussed privately between us earlier, no no COVID case, as far as I know, has been traced back to a cinema in the UK. I mm-hmm. don't know how it is in Europe or the US. Um, <clears throat> and I feel that cinemas are doing everything they can in terms of social distancing. And, and in fact, it, that was very much in effect at the screening I went to see. Um, <clears throat> however, I mean, it... it I'll give you an example. I went to see Bond quite late because I had been sick with just a, a like a heavy cold, um, but didn't want to go to a cinema and then make other people sick. So I, I opted yeah. not to see Bond. And it would have been lovely to be able to just kind of buy that at home and pay the money and and, and see it there and still get the, the necessary things done that I needed to do, like the reviews and things. Uh, but I couldn't do that because there was no simultaneous release. However, mm-hmm. I understand the push for the cinema experience. I, you know, I fall on one side of the argument, which is, yeah, maybe start considering a closer home release for all these movies now at a reasonable, a more reasonable cost. Um, but at the same time, you've got to protect that industry. Well, that's the thing. What are you now- doing? Now? With with Dune kind of releasing in, especially in the states, on simultaneously in theaters mm-hmm. and on HBO Max, I have no idea how they kind of calculate the uh, the numbers from HBO Max. How that enters I... into like the the equation of of uh, how this movie is making money at all. So I I think the way they're counting it, which is is kind of makes sense in terms of the vertically integrated nature of these large corporations now is number of new subscribers in a certain period and then number of people watching it. Although they don't make money per watch, obviously if someone signs on and one of the first things they watch is Dune, that they can attribute that mm-hmm. to, you know, um, or if someone signs on for a free trial and, you know, one of the first things they watch is June and then they keep the subscription. That's a win for them, I guess. But, and I think largely those things are now going to be driven by the num by the, the size of the cultural imprint as well. Yeah. You know, it's not just going to be about the cash directly. It's going to be the size of the cultural imprint yeah. you can make. Uh, I think keep people conversing about your movie, you know. So um, I think and, I think you know sorry. that Dune's really taken off in that regard because yeah. the, the number of of memes that have come across. <laughs> because, let's be honest, Dune has always kind of been a very like it's it's one of the classic sci-fi stories. You know, mm. it predates Star Wars. It's at the basis of like a lot of uh, pop culture. It's kind of disseminated into pop culture, but it's always Absolutely. it's it's always been this kind of an, a niche thing, and it, it feels kind of like exciting, but also jarring in a way to see it being 
uh, discovered or kind of uh, accepted by a mainstream or more, you know, mainstream audience uh, this time around. Mm. Um, so I think in terms of cultural impact, it's it's doing quite well. And and I think what I've what I've seen of of the numbers so far, it's it's been pretty successful. Because I, I'd see, you know, the numbers are from like the European, like the non-US, non-UK markets mm. had already been pretty good. And uh, I think they were, like you said earlier, just waiting on the, the UK and the US uh, numbers to come in before they actually greenlit the, the part two. But um, yeah, I, I guess they would they would have to know. But also a lot of that will be because like a lot of the box office is done by projection. It's not actually done by. You know, they don't count every dollar. They mm -hmm. they make a projection on how much they're actually making. It's it's kind of yeah. You know, well, actually, we can see it's going to fall off here or gain there, and we'll just, you know, so we've we've made two hundred and fifty million dollars, whether or not they've actually made two hundred and fifty million dollars yeah, yeah, yeah. is a different story. And especially when you come to a film like this, which is is you know already costing a stonking amount of money to create. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very big canvas. I mean, sh sh let's let's talk about the the movie because. Yeah. <laughs> Where all the money, robot. Where all the money went. But now, this is because we were we were talking a little bit before you know we started recording about you know the book, and you haven't read the book, and this I is something read. I'm really interested in because I'm so biased as you know I've 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 read the book, I've I watched the David Lynch version, I've watched the sci-fi TV miniseries, right. so I'm watching this movie, and I'm seeing like a ton of elements that I recognize from the other versions from the book, but I'm wondering as someone, you haven't read the book, how no. intelligible and accessible that you found like the, the world building it, and the story. Extremely. And, I, and this is yeah. one of the things that I, I found very interesting about the film is that, that like a lot of good sci-fi slash fantasy, although this does lean more to the hard sci-fi uh, end of things, uh, it definitely isn't Star Wars, despite the the fact that, the, that there are antecedents and descendants there mm -hmm. we, could, we could discuss. Um, is that it creates its own very unique lexicon, you know, steel suits, uh, the Quizarat Haderich, the, if I'm saying that correctly, mm -hmm. uh, Bene Gesserit, you know, the, the, it has a unique language. Um, but I think for two two things, one, that language is largely rooted in Arabic uh, sounds, to, to my ear. I, I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy for anyone in the comments to to kind of talk more about that. If you want to drop us a, a comment and, and tell us where you feel this language comes from or where you know this language comes from. But the, so the one, thing... The thing that I found most impressive is I think one of the strengths of the, the screenplay as well is that it was very good at kind of balancing the necessary exposition. Mm. Like like you said, like, you know, they explain what the Bene Gesserit is. They explain the nature of like the um, the, the power dynamics in, in, this, uh, in this world. And it was sort of... But there's a ton of stuff there, like the introduction of uh, Thufur Hawat, Piter de Vries. Um, those are characters who are mentats. And as a book reader or somebody who's familiar with the world of Dune, it's like, I thought that was a great representation of mm. what mentats are, but they never really go into details. And I thought it was like yeah. a very nice balance there of 
you know, they explain like the really necessary elements of the the world that makes this uh, story intelligible. But on top of that, they they did a very good job of of really, um, act, you know, faithfully showing other elements without necessarily over explaining what they are but as a mm. book reader or somebody who's familiar with like the, the the dune world it was very cool to see that they did um took a lot of care in in putting that world on on screen uh, faithfully without beating you over the head with every minute detail which is kind of the the thing that made the david lynch version so hard to digest because mm. that movie starts off with you know, like virginia madsen uh, with like a five minute uh, monologue about like this is everything that's going on before even the narrative is, is kicked off. Well, yeah, and, and some interesting things there. It, so I, I think what it does is contextualize the uniqueness of the story within the story itself. So you understand just by what's going on. And you understand what a thing is at least on a very base level, on an instinctual level, by the context that it's in. Mm -hmm. uh, the the other thing is there is, of course, the opening monologue is now given to Chani, who yeah. is played by Zendaya, who we, we only see really briefly in this film. I understand we're going to see more in the next one, mm -hmm. who's one of the, the, the Fremen. Um, and that instantly resets the the context of the story from being one of aristocracy to being one of um, the, the working class in a way. Um, I think that goes to show like there's, there's many instances in this movie where I think Villeneuve has a, a more comprehensive grasp of the, the original text than the David Lynch version, mm. I think, because I think one of the main criticisms that Frank Herbert, like the, the original author, kind of levied at the David Lynch version is that they, uh, it really is kind of portraying Paul to be this all good Messiah figure. Whereas mm. I think one of the main themes of um, the, 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 the Dune novels is like, beware of heroes beware of these charismatic leaders because they are prone to real atrocities and spoilers for like this 50 year old book series but paul you know becomes a monster and he kind of unleashes like a lot of atrocities mm. in this uh, universe um, um, and i which, think it really i think it, it yeah. says a lot where you know <laughs> Zendaya's uh, opening narration ends with, you know, who will our next oppressors be? And then mm -hmm. it cuts to Paul. And I think yeah. that's the, you know, there's like a lot of meaning uh, kind of communicated in, in, in stuff like that. And I think Villeneuve has a very good grasp on like the original themes of the novels. Yeah, uh, and again, which I, I've not read, so I, I didn't know that about Paul, but I'm now, you know, even more interested to see what they do with the, the, the second film. Um, it, it's kind of, it's 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 very well kind of uh, foreshadowed because mm. I feel 
there's elements of uh, Dune Messiah, like the second book, already kind of interspersed into this one when Paul is having like the uh, spice vision when he's uh, together with Rebecca Ferguson in, in mm. the, the, the tent. That vision that he has of him and Zendaya overlooking the Fedaikin, like the this mm. Fremen uh, warriors kind of waging war on, on different planets. That's Those are elements that come into play in the second book. Right. Um, so I um, think it re it's that's what I meant with like I think Villeneuve and and John Spates, the screenwriters, have a very good comprehensive view of this story. And I, I really beyond the be, beyond the confines sorry, yeah. of the first book, I I wouldn't be surprised if they've written beyond the first story. Yeah. Like if there isn't at least a very distinct outline for you know part two and mm -hmm. e even three. Already, you know, if only the uh, the Star Wars films had done the same thing. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that, as you say, one of the benefits of that is you get this great texture and this kind of hint at, at, at the great thing. And for me, I, I just kind of realised today what the film, on a base level for me, was about. And it's about an aristocratic boy who must become one of the working class in order to become God, in a way. Um, now, whether or not, again, not having seen mm -hmm. or read the book and, and not knowing what happens beyond this, um, that obviously now sounds like it might be a force for ill rather than good, and, and that kind of fascinates me because I, I love the fact that people can actually approach that side of things rather than just you know he isn't just going to be neo he isn't going to be you know uh i think um the, the savior um again what this movie does really well is uh presenting the nuance of this uh messiahhood or mm. or this um the idea of propaganda because, you know, when the Bene Gesserit or like the, the Reverend Mother is introduced, uh, when she makes her exit, like she tells uh, Rebecca Ferguson's characters, like we've done what we could what we could on Arrakis. And that's sort of like preparing the way for Paul to go to Arrakis and have mm -hmm. the people there already sort of view him as the, the Lisan al Gaib, like this messiah figure. And it's uh, that's a big part of uh, Dune's story as well. And I think it's, it's, it's done very well in the sci-fi miniseries as well where they you know a lot of it is kind of propaganda in a way like these people have been prepared for a messianic figure to arrive and then paul is there and it's 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 very layered it's kind of complex because there are supernatural forces at play in this world so it kind of feeds into each other like it's it's not just that paul has this destiny it's like that this destiny has been prepared for him he's literally mm. been bred for him and that's kind of um this fatalistic kind of tragic nature of his story is something is another element that i feel that phil nav grasps really well mm. and, and from my point of view hearing you, you you talk about that and again i don't know what happens beyond this film mm -hmm. i have not read the book 
I've seen Lynch's version many years ago. I can't remember how that ends. I know that's a very compressed version mm-hmm. of the two books, I think, or or it's a very compressed version of the first book. One could almost see in the way that Benny Gesserit talk about uh, instructing their sisters to, to only breed women, uh, one could almost see Charney actually being the messiah that the the that Arrakis needs rather mm. than the one that's been chosen for them. I mean, I'm again, I don't know what happens. So um there are works, I feel it, there's certainly, you know, it works a little differently. Like right. for people, I'm not gonna go into too many spoilers, but there yeah. are still a lot of like a few revelations left about the bloodlines and stuff and the relationship between certain characters that will definitely come into play in the next one. Oh, and of course, we, we can't forget uh, uh, that uh, Lady Jessica is, in fact, uh, pregnant. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a yeah. big thing. Now, now, is that an element from the book? Is that there? Was that there? 100%. 100%. Right. Because, I mean, one of... When I went to see it, my expectations were so high. Um, and knowing that it's such a difficult book to adapt... And then I came out of it being, you know, extremely satisfied because it was um, a spectacular cinematic achievement, and it it really hues quite closely to the to the book. Mm. So I I can I really you know it's it's I think it's achievement in the fact that you know it is a faithful telling of the original story, and at the same time it is also clearly a, a Denis Villeneuve movie. And I yeah. think that's a, that's a huge accomplishment. Mm. Yeah, and, and definitely, I think, quite possibly my favourite of his films so far. I mean, I, I've really enjoyed the films of his that I've seen. Uh, Incendies, Blade Runner 2049, mm-hmm. Sicario, this. Oh, and Prisoners, of course, which was a yeah. magnificent film. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he's a filmmaker that never really disappoints. Um, on a technical level, the immersion and, and, and the reason I talk about immersion is because quite often you will see certain visual effects things in films that although you, you are aware on a conscious level, that is a visual effect. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sell it to you on a subconscious level, which I think is the more important thing. And therefore you're out of the film because films are this kind of subconscious uh, consensual dreaming, and you you must be kind of there on both levels. I think. However, this film, the immersion is superb. Like you, you are there one hundred percent, and the world building is magnificent. The technical uh, achievement of it is just—it's flawless. Yeah, it's absolutely flawless on a visual effects level. Um. And I was kind of really blown away by that. Like, just genuinely, genuinely kind of in awe of what they did. The the, the scale of certain set pieces is, uh, is mind-blowing. I mean, that's one of the mm. reasons that I feel that this movie kind of demands to be seen on, on a huge screen. Mm. Um, yeah, I feel it's interesting that you bring that stuff up because I also thought it was quite immersive, and at the same time, I've talked to other people who've said, like, yeah, I didn't feel very involved with the characters and I, f- I didn't feel very involved with 
you know, the, the emotional reality of the characters at all. And yeah, I had the complete opposite reaction. I've also heard a lot of people say like, it's a very slow movie and I'm sitting there like, no, those two, two and a half hours flew by. I, from yeah. I, I disagree, except in one yeah. respect, which hopefully we'll get to before the, the end. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact does concern the end of the film. Um, I, I wonder if that view of not being involved in the characters comes partly from the fact that, again, you're looking at aristocracy at a time when we're very much anti-aristocracy, whether that's the financial aristocracy mm -hmm. or the, the landed gentry, if you like. I, I wonder if part of that is just the kind of political shifts in in the world at the moment, you know. Um, I, I'm just I'm just shooting it out there as an I idea. I think it has less to do with like the the real world politics of the moment. Although I do think those factor into some of the the visuals and then the, the mm -hmm. elements in this movie. Obviously, I think the it goes back to the the original book. I don't think the original book is very accessible at all. I think it's kind of very dense. There's a lot of world building, like we talked about earlier. There's like a lot of uh, concepts uh, and characters introduced that are, frankly, very alien. Um, and and I, I don't think it is, you know, a very, when people say, or the people that I've talked to say, like, I wasn't very emotionally involved, Dune is kind of a, a cold story, you know, it's, it's, like you said, it's about this, you know, these this these arist aristocratic families mm -hmm. that are at war over basically oil, you know, like mm -hmm. it is this extremely valuable resource. And there is like a lot of esoteric uh, uh, imagery and, and uh, text involved. And it's, it's not very accessible. So I think that also uh, contributes to the fact that it's kind of been this niche uh, thing for a long time because it's not as you know uh, emotionally involving as Star Wars, for instance, or these other big mm. sci-fi franchise stories. And, and of course, all these all these other stories have pulled from it in, in a lot of ways. One hundred percent for sure, because it yeah. is the the it is so rich in ideas that I think it has been you know like a very fruitful ground to sort of pick little elements from and expand on them. In, in other uh, in other properties, and I mean, it kind of I, I worried it might go the way of um, John Carter of Mars, or John Carter as it was called, yeah. because that when you watch it is a perfectly fine adventure film with fantastic mm -hmm. world building, and you know it's perfectly enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, it could have done with a little more. I don't know, mm -hmm. esoteric whatever kind of being blended in there to really yeah. sell it however in watching that film you're also looking at all the things that have pulled from it since the the year it came out which you know was i yeah. think I, I don't know how old that book was maybe a, it's like 30s yeah yeah maybe even before that like yeah. it's it's kind of I, I did worry that, that that was going to be an issue but for me it mm. really wasn't june felt like its own thing and yeah you can see elements of this and that and and you know and of course then all the christ-like elements that things like the matrix have then pulled out further and 
Sure, but I didn't care because I was just enjoying it so much. I think that's, you know, it's it's greater than the sum of its parts in, in certain ways. Um, mm. I think the, like I said earlier, this, the scale uh, is just massive, but also the, the production design is wonderful. The, the, the costuming is, is great. Um, even though in my mind's eye, when I read the book, the certain depictions, I feel there's there's stuff in the David Lynch movie and especially like the sci-fi miniseries that I feel are more in line with the original book. I feel this one is kind of austere. Like it the even okay. like the, the ships, certain, you know, the uniforms, it's it's very kind of the architecture is very brutalist. It's kind of cold in a way that the other versions aren't. Especially the sci-fi miniseries is kind of very baroque. It's sort of very affluent in a way, much more colorful. Um, I feel that, that... Sorry, go on. Please finish what you're saying. I, I, no, I, I think that's I, just I, one of the strengths of, of this story and this world and these characters that they do lend themselves to this many different interpretations that can go in all these you know, wildly different choices can be made bringing this story to life. Yeah, and I found that even the choices with the design choices in, within the film quite fascinating because the the world of Caladan is of course a precipitous world, uh, and and as you point out, quite brutalist. Um, however, when you get to in your early glimpses of Arrakis, and when you get to it later, even right down to a lot of the vehicles they're using, and and particularly when you have the Harkonnen kind of environments as well things become quite insectoidal um, and you're looking at this kind of, I hope I'm saying this correctly, entomological version of mm -hmm. the world where, you know, the the sand carriers look like giant insects that you see at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Uh, you have the ornithopters, which are, are kind of like dragonflies. Um, and of course you have the, the natural creatures of Dune, the worms, like, you know, in the Harkonnen thing, we see a form of, spider i guess it's supposed mm -hmm. to be which it's is not the in the book which no is, no okay, that, that's that was there were a number of, of things that mm. are not in the book that you know they sort of uh did their own thing with especially the the one of the things that i found super intriguing was like the Seleucus secundus the sardaukar planet mm. so like the imperial army planet the whole thing with like the throat singer chanting guy not yeah. in the book right like these are such interesting choices and additions that they've made to this world that you know fit completely and are very intriguing at the same time and also i think it's an attempt in a way and i don't mean this as a negative i'm not bringing it up to start an, an argument or anything like that but i think it's a way to add an ethnic ethnicity to the film that perhaps has been absent in the story whether it's in the book and again, I haven't read the book, mm -hmm. uh, or the other versions of the film, because I know one of the things that's been kind of lobbed at the film is the, and indeed the book, is that it's a, it's a white saviour story. But I feel in that issue, they were kind of stuck in terms of, if you change Paul Atreides' ethnicity, mm -hmm. you'll get the purists, who are quite a large number, I believe, 
perhaps walking away from the film. Mm-hmm. If you if you kind of make Arrakis more ethnic, if you like, whether it's Arabic or people of color or you know you know um, a combination of all those things, then the film becomes even more of a white savior story, yeah. and that is a problem. And I, I feel they were kind of very much stuck. Um, but I feel that the film has got a good balance of bringing different cultures in. You know, we have Harvey Abada by them who's Spanish, and yeah. um, you, you know, there are actors from all over the world in that film who are bringing this wonderful mix of voices and sounds. And, and the film is a very audio-driven film. Yeah, I mean, well, I got a, I've got a number of things to to comment on there. I think the people who who look at Dune uh, and and see it as a, a white savior story um, are missing the larger context because sure. okay, the story beyond even this movie and in the following novels really does explore the downsides of of yeah. you know. Uh, I mean, the, the it goes into the atrocities that these that that Paul commits later on. Uh, so it's 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 much more nuanced than that. And you can, if knowing what happens later in the story, I can see elements in this film that you know makes me see that the the filmmakers and the storytellers are aware of that broader nuance like it's not a white savior story it's set up that way yeah it's set up that way but you know it it doesn't uh you know it doesn't go that way entirely Mm. um and as for the diversity that's on this this movie i think there's you know you mentioned it earlier when we were talking that a lot of the elements of arrakis and the terminology is based on arabic yeah the fremen are for sure um, uh, in the original text could totally influenced by Arabic elements, and I think something that hasn't been, you know, I think is could be a, is a valid criticism is that you know the Fremen that the, the way that they're depicted and cast in this movie are predominantly from diverse backgrounds, but not a lot of Islamic actors are in there, and I feel like that's something that hasn't really been yeah. discussed. A lot, and I feel that's an entire, you know, different discussion that you could go into. Um, but mm. yeah, and for I, sure. And I, I don't have any answers. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? I, I'm not. No, for, for it, sure. It's a, I mean, you know, in, in the white guy going, "Well, I know because I don't." Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's just <laughs> interesting that in the in the Lynch version, the Fremen were predominantly all white actors. Yeah. And even in the sci-fi, uh, like the 2000 miniseries, the Fremen were again predominantly mm-hmm. white actors and like Eastern European white actors in there, and so and so they. I do feel that it's it's mm-hmm. you know they made I, I, better I, casting choices this time around, but it's it's still weird to see like the original text is so it's so clearly that mm-hmm. the Arabic influence is there that they don't completely go that way. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I mean that's that's like an entire can of worms <laughs> to, yeah. to be open. And, and of course, it, it's quite illogical to think that they they wouldn't be 
people of color on Arrakis mm -hmm. simply just given the environment because yeah. you know it, it, it's just yeah no it's, it's stupid to believe that you know and and I I think I mean I, again I have no dog in the fight one way or another beyond yes I you know mm -hmm. I, I I'd like to see more diversity in films uh, and and indeed in 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 um, most pop culture if not yeah. all pop culture um so I, I have no kind of leaning one way or another. Uh, I think the film can only get more interesting as you you add more of those elements. Um, but I didn't have a problem with it looking at this film. I, I, I felt that, yeah, I, actually, you know, it, I think it's actually very well cast. And, and 100%. Kind of... I mean, this is just like, you know, in the, in the broader cultural sense, it's just an ongoing discussion. And I think yeah. that's something that, that we're constantly gonna have to be getting better at mm. and i feel you know i think the, the, this film is is quite diverse and i feel absolutely could, right. could it have been done better maybe we i don't know but i'm i think that's like i said earlier as well i i could totally see like a couple decades down the line there being another adaptation of dune Mm. You know, and who knows how that is going to be casted or how that's going to be interpreted down the line. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, there is a lot of, I mean, like the first thing I, I, I thought as the film opens, what you hear first is Hans Zimmer's music before you see anything. Yeah. Um, and as the legendary symbol is coming up, you hear these kind of drums and things. And mm -hmm. the first thing I thought is, ah, this is feudal Japan almost. Like, do you know what I mean? This sound yeah. is like taiko drums. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. kind of, if I'm getting that writing that they're from that part of the world i hope I, I am sorry if i'm not but that, that's the first thing i i thought and I, i've listened to some of the music apart from the film because i i just I'm a, I'm a big kind of soundtrack geek and i didn't get that sense from the album but totally once the film began it's just like ah yes hold on this is this is these mm -hmm. are like feudal houses of japan and things so it is drawing a ton of stuff and and putting that all into the blender and, and kind of putting it out in this way. Um, I mean, looking at the, I just, uh, I was completely by, bowled over by the, the way the Harkonnens were, were represented. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård was, was absolutely disgusting. Revolting. In every, yeah, in yeah, every was, way. The, yeah. type, the type of person you would not like to be in a room. Yeah. With. And he doesn't um, have that much screen time. No, I feel like, no. uh, and even with that little scream time that he had, he's like, oh, it's just mm. hard to look at him sometimes. And, and, and so much so that I, I actually felt like people like, obviously Zendaya, but also Batista was, was yeah. you know. I love that he's he's become this like wonderfully charismatic character actor mm. now. Like this this hulking man. And every time I see him, I'm yeah. like, yeah, Dave's here. <laughs> because you know I, he's going to be... But I, I always think that was the way he was going to go because he he has said from the very beginning that in himself he is actually quite shy in real life and mm -hmm. and I, I I actually think he is very interested in acting whereas you know with all due respect I look at the Rock and the Rock doesn't look like someone who's interested in acting yeah. he's he looks like he's interested in being the Rock you know yeah. uh, which is perfectly fine I I love those movies I go see them I enjoy them but I I. You know, that's a person yeah, having... who's interested in being a movie star. That's a person who's interested in being an actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, for sure. I, 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 got... I, I, I love Jason Momoa in this as well. You know, mm. I just, um, 
is just this guy just has to be himself can he can just be himself in every movie and that's not to say that he doesn't <laughs> no look being yourself on camera is an entire like separate skill like people change when like cameras are turned on them mm -hmm. and it's it's just it's not easy to just sort of okay i'm just gonna be who i am i'm gonna be oh. super charismatic and it helps that you know the the, the character of duncan idaho kind of lines up with his, well, I his think, personality. Um, I mean, for one thing, how many times have we all looked at movies and looked at the casting before we've seen a, a foot of film and gone, yeah. no, I don't buy it. I don't yeah, buy yeah. it. That's that. And yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And and of course, there is this, this great thing I, I remember Gabriel Byrne saying uh, years ago, which was... Um, there are two, there are several schools of acting. Said one school is, you know, to bury yourself in physicality and put on fake yeah. noses and do all this and do all that. He said, but the other school is, um, to as you've just said, to play yourself. Mm -hmm. And he said, and I think the better you can play yourself, the better actor you are. And I, I, I certainly think that's true of someone like Momoa, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and indeed, like T Timothy, uh, uh, you know, obviously there's there's lots of ways to say this. T Timothy Chalamet is uh, very good as Paul. Yeah, like, I I really yeah. liked yeah. His, his performance. I mm -hmm. I really liked Oscar Isaac as uh, uh, Duke Leto. Uh, yeah, there. I mean, there was all stellar, no weak link anywhere in this cast. It was. Mm. Uh... Yeah, it was you know, wonderful um, to see. Javier Bardem, Zendaya was great in the yeah. in a sort of far too small a role. Rebecca Ferguson in particular, because the film very much is taken from the women's point of view. Yeah. Quite yeah. a lot of the time. And, and, and I think this is something new that they have kind of swung the script around to, which is mm -hmm. adding in this kind of more dominant female view, which is great. Um, and that is kind of perfectly embodied by by Lady Jessica and yeah. Rebecca Ferguson, who is, I think, you know, that was another criticism that I've seen a couple of times now that um, Rebecca Ferguson's character in the book is, you know, I mean, the, the Benny Jesuit in the book are these elite figures, you know, they're in total control, mm. fighting skills, um, this ability with the voice to influence people. And Jessica in the book has this kind of steely demeanor. And in the in this movie, you see her get quite emotional at times. I think that's another sort of that's something that they had to do because in the book, there's a lot of inner monologue. And in the book, you see that Jessica is quite worried or distressed at times. She just doesn't show it. Mm. And I think they 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 found a very good way. I, I I thought it was very believable. I thought that was a very, you know, good way into the character to sort of see that when she's alone, she sort of has to recompose herself. And I think she did a wonderful job. I think that was a very, you know, interesting, compelling, layered performance there. Because when I think there's a sequence in there where she uh, after the scene where the spice harvester gets eaten by the worm mm -hmm. 
Paul is examined by Dr. Yui and Jessica confronts him about like the visions that he's had. Mm. And Paul says, I know that you're pregnant. And then she goes to Duke Leto and like she's completely distraught on her walk over to Duke Leto's chambers. And then when she enters the room with him, she's completely composed mm. herself again. I think that was just such, you know, a good way of showing the inner emotionality of that character or like the, the thought processes that are going on there. Isn't there, can you help me out? I, I've heard, but I'm not sure if it's right. Isn't there like a quasi incestuous nature to Paul and Jessica's relationship in the f book? Not that I am. Am I wrong? I Nothing. thought I'd read somewhere that there is actually quite a there's there's a sort of frisson between them because there was a weird moment in this you know where they're on the you know mm -hmm. when they're in um they're on arrakis and they're fleeing and they have, have to, to put the still change. suits on yeah and there's like a glance yeah between and that was quite odd and i didn't understand what that glance meant but I thought I'd remember I'd read. Sorry to bring it up. It, it just, it just, it was a moment that struck me as weird. And I'm sure I remember reading there was something in the book that lends towards the fact that they might have had a sort of quasi. There's nothing explicit in there that I can remember. Right. But um, I think I thought that's that's a moment that stuck out to me as well. And I think mm. that's something. Uh, another thing that this movie does quite well is sort of not necessarily spoon feeding you everything about mm. the relationships that these characters have yeah. the abilities that some of these characters have like it just gives you enough and but it also just doesn't really hold your hand the the whole way the whole way through sure that's what i what i, what I really enjoyed about this film as well mm. because yeah i mean I, it, it it absolutely doesn't it, it lets you find it rather than leading you, mm -hmm. which is interesting, uh, especially for modern storytelling. Yeah, coming from a major mm -hmm. American studio, you know, um, but not something I, I think we should necessarily be surprised at coming from Villeneuve, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, my one okay, so my only issue with the film was structurally towards the end, I felt and Obviously, folks, we've we've done spoilers throughout the the movie, and uh, it, I, I when I when I post this out on social media, I will post the fact that this, we, this is a spoilerific show. So, my one problem with the, the the structure of the film was that I feel like the film should have ended as Paul and Jessica piloted the ornithopter into the sandstorm yeah and the harkonnen troops fired their missiles mm -hmm. at the ship i felt the film should have ended there because as much as there is this enormous component of people like yourself who've read the book mm -hmm. there's an enormous component of people like me that haven't and i i felt that a, a, a real major cliffhanger was necessary there and then to move all that stuff we saw at the end of the film to the beginning of the next one would mm -hmm. have been, I, I think, more 
uh, enriching story-wise. However, yeah, yeah. how what's your view on that? Um, I get it. I don't necessarily agree, but I get it because I've heard that com complaint from so many people now that they they feel like the movie just ends, and that mm. there's no like. You know, it's completely open-ended and not like you said, there's like not, not a, an exciting cliffhanger. The way that I read it was, I, f I feel like it kind of closed the arc of what was set up in the scene where Paul and Leto talk in the graveyard mm. where he says, we've ruled Caladan through air and sea power on Arrakis, we're going to have to cultivate desert power. Sure. And that entire, you know, when they arrive on Arrakis, you know, they have this plan to uh, get in touch with the Fremen mm. and sort of build up an alliance there. And I feel the one of the final shots of the movie when Paul and Jessica see the Fremen riding one of the sandworms, I feel that sort of closes that arc of like, we found it. This is how we're going to take Arrakis back is this is desert power because mm. they've been looking the entire movie uh, as soon as they arrive on Arrakis sort of trying to build this alliance and I feel like the movie ends uh, with Paul sort of accepting you know choosing like I'm going to go with these people I'm going to become one of them and you know I'm going to use their strength to fulfill my father's dream or ambition for this planet and i feel that sort of was you know the th that resonated very well i felt that was for mm. me it felt satisfying that it ended there in terms of plot yeah it's completely open-ended it doesn't you know it doesn't really sort of tie it up uh, at this this at this as, at the height of dramatic tension no it's sort of lulls a little bit like all yeah. this stuff still has to happen and we'll see you in uh, a number of years so <laughs> i can I, I get it i get it that it's not very satisfying to people but in terms of like a thematic arc i felt like that's been brought to sure. a, like a satisfying conclusion there but i'm mm -hmm. i'm i completely understand that it's not you know it doesn't feel that way for a mm -hmm. lot of people and, and also i guess it, it shows the the kind of the negative side of good intentions because you know it's it's a tradies plan that yeah we can we can actually you know we don't have to oppress we can mm -hmm. we can live side by side we can you know communicate we can do this uh and of course he's proven utterly wrong in a way like you correct once but also utterly wrong because there's always someone willing to to do it the other way i, I mm -hmm. find and, and that's the hard again thing. this um, it's these things are throughout the entire dune series get twisted and turned and, mm. and put on their heads so many times but that's interesting like i think one of my one of the most interesting i mean dune is filled with like a uh, an endless amount of uh, wisdom and and, and uh, aphorisms, but and, and I'm paraphrasing here. But one mm. of my favorite lines from the book is like, "One of the worst fates that could befall your people is that they fall. You know, they are being led by a hero." And it really like the the again, I've, I've brought it up a couple of times now. That's something that Vilna really understands. Like this, yeah. 
um, this this perilous nature of people in positions of power. And I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to how, you know, he's going to do the next one if they get around to, to doing a third one, which might be Dune Messiah. I'm really looking forward to how mm. that's going to play out because they've, they've done such a good job so far of, of setting everything up and, and retaining that nuance that's there. In, in the story. And and speaking of power, there's this a character we don't see in this, which is the Emperor Yes Adam the Fourth. We you know, yeah, we yeah. don't see the, the guild navigators, we yeah. don't see all these kind of very rich elements that were in yeah. other versions. Um so there's yeah, the, still the, a the, lot the spacing guild navigators. Yeah. Like if you think about the David Lynch version, one of the the most striking elements of iconography there is like this yeah. giant worm creature floating in a tank. Mm. And when I when I started when I went to watch this one for the first time, I was thinking to myself, I can't wait to see how they've done the space guild navigators yeah, of this of one. And there aren't any. There aren't any. <laughs> Which is, you know, I think but I I like that. I like that that there's this restraint. Like we're not going to give you everything up front. That's and you know, they, they, I, I I enjoy stuff like that because yeah. There is, of course, a lot of plot elements unresolved, which is, you know, we see the Bene Gesserit sisterhood essentially give the Harkonnens the go-ahead to, to mm -hmm. murder the Atreides. And in fact, even to kill Paul. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's quite well, interesting. Not, well, not really. They, do you not, do you not they, think so? Because I, I feel that they that's exactly what they would... That, that was the implied nature of it for me. That they, um, the, the entire plot that the uh, Arconan can go back to Arrakis and, and decimate mm. the Atreides is exactly what the Emperor wants because he's uh, he's fearful of the the Atreides mm. uh, rising power and influence in but do, the do lands rot. Not... But the Bene Gesserit explicitly say like you know you can go there you can take back Arrakis you can decimate the Atreides but we don't want Jessica and Paul to be harmed. Because Paul is really that's what they, they need mm. him because he is a product of like their right. genetic engineer. Sorry, I, I must have misread this thing completely, mm. which is yeah, highly uh, likely for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, a fascinating film. I, I think one that I desperately want to see again as soon as I can. Mm -hmm. um, it's and, rich on it's rich on so many levels. It's, yeah. It's, it's it's tough to touch, you know. It's a, to I could talk about it for hours, really. Mm. Uh, I haven't even touched upon, like, I talked a little bit earlier about how like the the the, the architecture on Arrakis is kind of like brutalist and kind of barren. Uh, the way like that it's been depicted in the book, and especially in the two thousand sci fi miniseries, mm. uh, the city of Arrakeen, where the Atreides land. It's quite densely populated, like it's very yeah. bustling. And this, when you see Arakeen here, it's sort of it's empty. There's like not a lot of commotion. And I feel that was uh, an explicit choice on Villeneuve's part to sort of say like, this is not a place of life. Like death is waiting for this, you know, for the Atreides here. And mm. I think that's just you know again another testament to the the richness of this world and this story that in adapting it people can make wildly different 
choices and it you know it it still feels true to that world but they can they can make it their own like it's so open to interpretation sure and i think i think that's fascinating because to me yeah. like the the the, the the thing that made it that made this film so uh, a big win in my eyes is that it you know it is a faithful representation you know the adaptation of the book and it still feels like you know a Villeneuve movie like it definitely feels like an auteur mm. movie still yeah it really seems like he's probably gone through the book and found things that are him that speak mm -hmm. to him and therefore uh you know can really kind of then make it more accessible to to people like well, people like me, really, because uh, you know you you've read the book and I, I haven't. Mm -hmm. um, Tony, is there anything else you want to say about the movie? Because we we're coming up to the end now. Um, it's been fascinating getting your view on the film. And... Um, I I recommend it wholeheartedly. Mm. Um, I think it's uh, in this day and age kind of a a rarity to see a film with this much uh like it's huge like it's a huge production it's um and and it's it's this huge production is this huge movie that is not patronizing in any way like it, it it leaves room for interpretation uh it leaves room for ambiguity um next to it being this huge sprawling sci-fi action adventure movie i feel it's a very compelling work and i just i love it i love it like it's it's really rare to have for me to have like these huge towering expectations and then still having them be uh, exceeded so i i was extremely happy with this movie um as you know, as a fan of, of of the book and of this world, I think they did it justice, one hundred percent. That's great. I, I I really loved it. I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing more and and seeing the film again. Uh, maybe one day I'll even get around to reading the book. <laughs> so, uh, we're we're gonna have more on June on the website. I, I will be attempting uh, a sort of more cohesive written review of my own. Try, just trying to get my own thoughts down um because i'm a bit scattershot sometimes as you can probably tell um but tony i, I want to thank you for doing this today because it, it's been wonderful to talk to you as always i, I always love our conversations but thank we you for, for, for inviting me <laughs> no 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 it's a pleasure i, I just knew that, that you were someone i wanted to have on as soon as i i, I thought about doing this because the number of times you've seen it and i i wanted kind of someone to come in with a positive view on the film and you've certainly done that and and thank you for doing that um i wish you best of luck with your next comics project because uh, I, I know you've got something in the pipeline and uh i know there's a lot of fans of crow song um we'll have tony's website in the description please take a look at it and, and please think about buying a copy of crow song it's a terrific comic um, thank you for the shout outs paul not at all not at all um it's the least i can do sir um and hopefully we'll catch up in London. We'll have a proper kind of I am, conversation. I, then. I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, it's been 
close to two years now. I think we're, you know, that, yeah, that, that pint is due. That, that <laughs> pint of Guinness is due. You know? um, yeah, I'd love to. I, I, I would love to. I don't get to see people that much these days, but I'd love mm -hmm. to catch up with you um, because it, 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 it was such a pleasure seeing you uh, back for the release of Crow Song, um, which I think, yeah, was the last time we actually we got to meet in person, right? I don't think we've yeah. been back since then and mm -hmm. um and i'm sure you'll have a lot of fun seeing everyone at thought bubble uh i know uh, we've got a lot of mutual friends and acquaintances that you you're you're dying to see mm -hmm. and, and i wish you all the best for it's the gonna thought be bubble. surreal and, and hopefully in, in yeah i mean god it is like a, a, as as we were talking about beginning i went back to mcm last um mm -hmm. uh, week and that was weird yeah. <laughs> it was lovely but no, I've had, I mean, I've had the same experience here where when things uh, started opening uh, up again a couple of months ago now, mm. then it sort of feels surreal and familiar at the same time. Right. And I wonder how it's going to feel to see all my friends from, from the UK again at mm. a UK con. I'm really looking forward to it, but it's going to be, it's going to be a little strange, but uh, no, I'm, I, yeah. I'm, I've been waiting for it because I, I, I love Thought Bubble and, um, yeah, I just, I can't wait. I, I've never been. I mean, I've talked a lot to Gemma in the last mm -hmm. year or so, uh, who works down at Travelling Man. He's part, you know, very much part of Full Bubble. Um, so I'd love to see Gemma in person because we've never actually physically mm -hmm. met. Um, I was lucky enough to see a couple of our mutual friends, Rebecca and, and Fee, just, just recently, just last weekend, I think. Or, or early in, in the week. I can't remember what day. <laughs> I'm so confused about what, what day it is now. But, yeah, um, we'll, we'll talk some more soon. I, I want to thank you again. Thanks for coming on. It was lovely, guys. Paul. Thank um, you. Uh, for all the viewers out there, uh, you can follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Van... VNRS. VNRS, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I, I should know this because, I, you know, <laughs> it's one of my pals. We, we follow each other. Um, you can follow me at the Comic Crush, says right there, um, or at Comic Crush Paul. You can follow Instagram at the Comic Crush. Um, and of course, do click on the link for the website. There's loads of stuff about comics and films on the website. Uh, I'm adding more and more every day. There is the web store if you want to help me out because every comic you buy helps me keep everything going. And of course, the Patreon. Please take a look at that if, if you feel inclined. Uh, I'd love to have you guys on board to see some of the bonus material there. And hopefully we'll be back for part two, which will be calling Arrakis, which should be about seven days after you see this. That's the plan anyway. <laughs> it's a very full uh, month, November, of podcasts, and it's all kind of ladled at the front, unfortunately. <laughs> so uh, we're doing the best we can. And, of course, the regular comic show, Crushing Comics, with Liz Jordan every roughly every Thursday or Friday. So drop on and see that. There's a new episode on there right now, which is our Halloween special. Uh, and of course, episode 11 will be on in a couple of days from this. Tony, I'm not going to keep you anymore. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for uh, having me, Paul. And I look forward to having you back to talk about comics sometime soon. Absolutely.